Good morning, and welcome to United States webinar on Molly Ball's fascinating new book, Pelosi, uh, which unsurprisingly is a political biography of Nancy Pelosi. Now, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. As I'm sure everyone watching this is well aware, we're in the midst of a rather tumultuous election season in the US. Last week, the Democrats hosted their online convention, and this week it's the Republicans' turn, which means that most of the commentary will necessarily be centered around Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But to have a real conversation, a real discussion about power in Washington, we need to broaden that circle to include the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. Now, arguably, Nancy Pelosi is the most successful woman in American politics. The first female speaker of the House in American history, Pelosi has twice held this position. And in one of the most turbulent eras in American politics, she's taken center stage multiple times, whether we're talking about impeachment, the government shutdown, ongoing arguments over whether Washington can pass another much needed stimulus package, and debates over what exactly is going on with the US Postal Service today. But what exactly characterizes Nancy Pelosi's leadership? What's been her approach to dealing with the most volatile White House in US history? And what might Pelosi's legislative priorities be in a Biden administration? To answer these questions, John Lee and I are pleased to welcome Molly Ball to Australia, albeit virtually, to talk about her fascinating book, Pelosi. Here we go. Uh, by the way, everyone who's watching this should know Amazon Australia carries it as well, and you can order it there. Uh, Molly is Time Magazine's national political correspondent and a political analyst for CNN. Her new book has been hailed by publishers from the Washington Post to O Magazine. She appears regularly on PBS's Washington Week, CBS's Face the Nation, and ABC's This Week, and other television and radio programs. Molly's the winner of numerous awards for her coverage of American politics, including the Gerald Ford Journalism Prize and the Toner Prize for Excellence in Political Reporting. She grew up in Idaho and Colorado, attended Yale University, and lives in, Washington, in the Washington, D.C. area with her husband and three kids. We're thrilled to have her on to discuss her book and the state of American politics. Here's the game plan. John and I will pepper Molly with some questions, and then we'll work to broaden the discussion to include all of those of you who are watching. If you want to submit a question, please do so, but please make it as short as possible so that we can get through as many as possible. All right, Molly. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure having you on. Uh, and just to kick off, uh, I, I'd love to open up by asking you, what led you to write this book, to take time off from writing uh, on a daily, weekly basis, and to write a political biography of Nancy Pelosi? And when you were writing it, what surprised you most about her career? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, John. And thanks to everybody uh, for being here. This is to date uh, the farthest stop on my virtual book tour. So it's wonderful to, to be in Australia, albeit remotely. Uh, and um, I will start by uh, with the story of how I came to write this book. I took uh, my current job at Time Magazine in late 2017. I'd been a writer at the Atlantic Magazine for several years before that. And one of my first assignments was to write a cover profile of Nancy Pelosi, who uh, at that time had never been on the cover of Time Magazine or any American news magazine, uh, despite having become in 2007, the first woman speaker of the house in American history. And despite being, I think, objectively a quite prominent figure in American politics. And she was a little bit bitter about this. She would sometimes drop little hints about, you know, isn't curious, I've never been on the cover. Uh, but we felt that, that, that it was newsworthy more than anything, right? That's how we decide who to put on the cover, not who do we owe something to because we didn't give it to them before. Um, and, and in 2017, going into 2018, the midterm elections, the first national elections of the Trump era, she was really uh, the central figure. She was the dominant uh, fundraiser for the Democrats and strategist for their national campaigns. Uh, and uh, she was also uh, the, the dominant figure in the Republican campaign strategy. They were very overt about the fact that uh, their attempt to uh, 
keep control of the House in the midterms would be essentially to just to put Nancy Pelosi in all of their ads. Uh, because she's such an unpopular, such a polarizing figure in large swaths of the country, uh, and uh, this is something that, that, that they've been doing for a, a decade and, and, and nothing unfair about it, right? Politics ain't beanbag. And, uh, and, 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 it, and it, was a, it was true for them to go to swing voters in uh, parts, in more conservative parts of the country and say, you know, if, if you elect a Democrat in your particular district, that's who you're putting in charge of the Congress. Um, but so uh, it seemed at the same time, you know, the dominant political dynamic in the United States since basically the day after uh, Donald Trump was elected in 2016 has been this historic wave of women's political activism, really like nothing we have seen in American history in terms of women uh, participating in politics, women organizing, women voting, and women running for office in, in, in historic numbers. And so it seemed like there was a little bit of attention, a little bit of irony in the fact that she had become um, the focus of, of Republican attacks. She was the subject of a lot of angst among the Democrats because she'd been in charge of the Democratic caucus for at that point 15 years, along with her two deputies uh, in charge of the House Democratic caucus. Uh, and a lot of people were ready for her to move on. They were ready to stop having these attack ads in their districts, accusing them of being puppets for Nancy Pelosi. And, and they wondered if, if you know, it, her time maybe had come and gone and it was, and it was time for her to leave. So um, my first uh, interview with her in January 2018, this is uh, you know, winter in the United States, we met in Baltimore where she's from uh, in a little pastry shop in Little Italy where, where she grew up, where her father was the mayor when she was growing up. Uh, and even though it was the middle of winter and 20 degrees outside, 20 degrees Fahrenheit, I don't know, that's below zero Celsius, uh, she, uh, Oh. She had a chocolate ice cream for breakfast. So that immediately told me something about uh, this person that I was getting to know. And we talked about her life, talked about uh, her roots, had a series of conversations that went into my, my profile, which ran on the cover of Time Magazine in September 2018. But, you know, I think in the course of reporting and writing that article, I realized that she is one of these political figures that everybody has an opinion about, but very few people actually know much about. Very few people know her story. Uh, she's not one of these folks politicians who's always relating things back to her own life. She doesn't, she's not a natural storyteller, I think, at all. She doesn't uh, tell her own story uh, very frequently or very capably, I'd say. Uh, and so I, I, it seemed like there was a story here that was ripe to be told. And then, of course, uh, the midterm elections happened in November 2018, and there was this immediate shocking 180 degree reversal in her public image, where all of a sudden a lot of the same people, especially on the left, who'd been disparaging her for so long, uh, it, it was like their, their heads snapped in the other direction. They went, oh, actually, maybe she is good at her job. Maybe we should keep her around. There was a confrontation, a famous confrontation that she had with Donald Trump on camera in the Oval Office, which is the, the picture on the cover of my book uh, that, that turned her into this sort of resistance heroine uh, celebrated by these same, you know, women, who, liberal women who were so hungry to see somebody uh, stand up to President Trump to his face, especially a powerful woman who refused to back down to him. I think it's always been clear that, that, that Trump is a little bit afraid of her. He seems to respect her. He, he respects strength and, and her strength, her toughness. I think whether or not you agree with her about anything, those are qualities you really uh, cannot accuse her of not having. Uh, so, the, so the combination of all of these factors made me think, okay, there's a bigger story to be told here. There's a story about Nancy Pelosi that I want to tell uh, the, in, in a fresh way. There have been biographies of her before, but, but not one that I felt did justice to her uh, her place in American history as 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 a as you know as a barrier breaking politician as someone of uncommon effectiveness at a time when uh, Washington seems to be broken the Congress in particular is so dysfunctional so few people so few leaders seem to have mastered uh, just the that basic process of of coming up with major policy legislation and, and getting it through the the Congress and signed by the president uh, and and. And then the, the, the role that she has played in uh, the liberal achievements of the past few decades, largely when you know, Barack Obama was president and she was the speaker in 2009 and 2010, uh, she really is, I think, a figure of great historical significance 
in American politics uh, and, and one whose story was, was not, not well known. Molly, uh, it's great to have you on. I read your book all in one go over the weekend because it's a really easy read, even though it's 300 pages. And one of the things that struck me about the book was, you know, one, it wasn't a puff piece. It wasn't just a, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about what's so good about Nancy Pelosi. But the second thing was you go into ex extremely granular detail, not just about what she does, but what she may have been thinking at the time, her methods and, and, and her relationships and so on, her political relationships. Now, that obviously meant you spent a lot of time with Pelosi uh, and you uh, make the case just then that this book needed to be written. But from Nancy Pelosi's side, uh, why would she have allowed you this access? Um, you know, my, my experience with politicians is that unless they know what the book is going to say about them, which, is, which they want it to be favourable, they tend to be very uh, wary of these sorts of uh, biographies. So how, was, how did Nancy receive your request to uh, interview her to write this book? Uh, did she take quite a bit of convincing uh, to get on board? Yeah, great question. So uh, I, it, this is, I don't consider this an authorized biography in the sense that, you know, Nancy Pelosi had no say in its contents or in my conclusions. And I'm gratified to hear you say that, that you found it to be a balanced portrait because that is what I wanted it to be. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I had the book contract in hand, frankly, before I secured uh, her, uh, her agreement to, to give me interviews specifically for the book. Uh, so I would have proceeded to write the book and I hope that I would have written the same book based on what I concluded to be true based on my research, whether or not I had had that access to her. Now, she did give me a series of interviews, uh, both for the book and for uh, my ongoing coverage of her in Time magazine. Uh, but I made no promises to her. And frankly, it did take some convincing, mainly by her staff. Her, her staff, uh, who I have a, a good relationship with, although they have a, at times uh, objected to various things I've written or, or said on television, um, they believed that this was that this was a worthy project, but she didn't really see the point of it. You know, as, 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 as you know, the, the portrait of her that emerges in my book is of someone who is sort of relentlessly practical and results oriented. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's someone who uh, isn't really, doesn't really see why she needs to have a book written about her, how it serves her proximate ends, right? Having her picture on the cover of a book, no matter how flattering, uh, does not necessarily help her get the next bill through Congress or get the president to the negotiating table on the next bill. So it, it did take quite a bit of uh, diplomacy on the part of her staff once I convinced them uh, to get her to sit down for these interviews and they were frequently, you know, rescheduled and moved around and that sort of thing. So, you know, politicians will all say, oh, I only care about results. I'm not in this for my ego or to seek power or whatever else. Uh, and I am uh, relentlessly skeptical of those sorts of claims, but she is one of the least, I think, ego-driven politicians I've ever covered in the sense that uh, she does not seem to spend a lot of time uh, worrying about uh, her public image. And when I've tried to draw her into conversations about it, she routinely deflects. She routinely uh, changes the subject to, to legislative strategy or, or to other things that preoccupy her more. And I think it's very telling about the way her mind works that, that uh, uh, so, so this is all, all a way of saying that, that uh, I'm not totally sure why she agreed to it. Uh, I'm glad she did. Uh, the book would have been poorer if, if she hadn't. However, uh, I will also say that uh, she, as a journalist, uh, she's not a great interview, right? She's a very opaque person. She's a private person. I think it's equal parts uh, just who she is. It's, it's part cultural, it's part generational, having been raised as, you know, a sort of well-mannered uh, Catholic schoolgirl in the 1950s. Uh, she's not someone who opens up and, and, and talks about uh, uh, herself, uh, even with her friends and, and even with people who have known her for many, many years. They will tell you there isn't there isn't an, another Nancy Pelosi that comes out, uh, you know, when the cameras and the tape recorders are off and she sort of lets down her hair. So, uh, so I felt like, you know, another theme of the book is that, uh, is, is that judging, that she should be judged by, by her actions more than by the way that she's perceived. Uh, and I found that in just, in, in going through the record 
in observing her actions through the years, in you know, researching all of the, the coverage of her as a political actor over the course of her career, I learned much more about her, frankly, uh, than I did from a lot of our conversations. Um, you know, actually really interested in what really came out in the book, uh, as John was saying too, is her pragmatic drive. Uh, and I thought one of the more interesting judgments that she made was that you can contrast how she is done uh, by holding her speakership against the two Republican speakers who served in between her, John Boehner and Paul Ryan. Uh, and you wrote that they were not able to control the right wing of their party, whereas she firmly, uh, for the most part, was in control of the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, she never brought legislation to the floor that she didn't think she could win, and she never lost a majority uh, vote on the floor. And if that's a useful contrast, what do you make of it? How can you explain the difference? Is it just the process? Is it her method, you know, a methodical pragmatic streak? Is it something about her style? How is it that she's just so good at whipping votes, whereas her predecessors fell down on that account in some ways? You know, I think governing is a skill. I think legislating is a skill. I think she has a number of unique skills that are suited to the position of leading a congressional majority. Uh, and, and they don't necessarily overlap with the kinds of skills that we privilege in our coverage of politics, frankly, right? They're not necessarily the same skills as the skills it takes to win an election. They're not necessarily the same skills as it takes to, 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 to give a soaring speech. Uh, or, to, or to present a, a visionary agenda to the public. Uh, but when it comes to the blocking and tackling of the legislative process, you know, there's, there's 435 members of the House of Representatives. Uh, and even if you only consider the, what is it, 240 that are in the Democratic caucus, uh, she can tell you, not, I can't even remember their, all their names, but she can tell you, you know, every single one of them, who, who is in their district, what committees are they on, what caucuses are they part of, who do they have, who are they friends with, who are they enemies with. The House is very much, you know, unlike the Senate, where everyone has a personal relationship with each other, the House is very much this, this constantly shifting uh, over, these constantly shifting and overlapping blocks that have to all be sort of put into position. She has at times described herself, she, she sees herself as a weaver at a loom, uh, weaving all the different strands together. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think that just the fact, and there, and there's, I, I think in a, this is a, this is a book about uh, leadership in a lot of ways, a book about uh, power and, and the way it is mastered. And, and so there are a number of individual techniques that I document in the book, whether she's you know, at the negotiating table with the Republicans or uh, trying to get her own caucus on board with something she wants to do, some extraordinarily difficult things, right? Getting the anti-war left to agree to continue to fund George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of difficult pills for the left to swallow. So, you know, I, I covered the, the, the so-called Republican Civil War for about a decade, and people were always sort of making excuses for the Republican speakers that, oh, you know, the members of their caucus are just so ornery, so unruly, so insane. There are plenty of insane people in the Democratic caucus. It is not the case that Democrats are inherently more well-behaved or rational. Uh, if anything, you know, it's a much more diverse group, uh, you know, ethnically, geographically, ideologically, uh, than the, the Republicans in this day and age. Um, so, so, so there are discrete techniques that she uses. I also draw a connection uh, between her, her legislative skills and her parenting skills. This is someone who had five children in six years uh, and uh, was, was it, it, to this day is, is renowned among her children and her, and her friends for the way that she, she kept them in line. And I think there are a lot of parallels with that to the art of legislating. But more than any one tactic, I really came to, to realize that she just has a very deep understanding of human nature and human motivation. That she is able to play on people's different desires and interests. She's very much someone who sees politics as a matter of making people's interests align in order to forge and, and finding shared interests in order to forge compromise. Uh, and she has a real, I think, innate sense for that, uh, that, that 
and that is that's the bigger skill beyond like yes she knows how to you know in a negotiation pretend to be conceding something that you didn't want anyway so that the person you're negotiating with walks away and feels like they got something out of it there's a lot of little tricks like that that i felt like i learned uh from observing her but i think the 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 overriding skill is that understanding of human motivation that's um it's fascinating and it makes me think a little bit about where you come down in the book, because uh, at least my read on it, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Molly, is that you conclude that she has really shifted the balance of power in Washington. Uh, in fact, you write that uh, it wasn't Trump's Washington, turned out it was hers. Now, I, I'm actually curious to ask you about that judgment and see if you want to update that, because for those who are worried about the damage that Trump continues to do to American institutions and norms and America's reputation, that seems like a very optimistic note that you struck there. Uh, and I'm curious uh, why you led, um, what led you to characterize Washington's power dynamics quite like that, and if you feel that you need to update that assessment or if you would still hold by it. Um. That's that's a very good question. I don't I'm I would not change my assessment. However, what I would say is that is an option the institutions as they exist and are supposed to be utilized, right? And what we have seen from Trump and his administration is uh, a willingness to really exceed what have been commonly understood as the limits of presidential power. In fact, he's been impeached for it, and some people even think he deserves to be impeached again. Uh, but when it comes to the traditional uh, you know, role of the executive, is particularly in dealing with Congress, uh, this president is not going to leave much of a mark legislatively. He has gotten one major piece of, of policy legislation, the, the, the tax bill, uh, through Congress, despite his party controlling both chambers and the presidency. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, a lot of other things that he would have liked to do, whether it's repealing Obamacare, building the border wall, uh, all kinds of other legislative priorities to the extent that uh, this president can be said to have them, uh, they, he has not been able to, to follow through and get things through Congress. And he has, uh, you know, that that government shutdown when she regained the speakership in 2019 is a case in point where she believed she had the leverage in that situation. She held her ground. She kept her caucus in line at a time when a lot of them, you know, moderate freshmen who, who weren't going to vote for her for speaker and had come from conservative leaning districts where they wanted to show their constituents they could get something done. They really didn't like that the first thing they were being asked to do was to refuse to negotiate uh, with the president. Uh, but she ended up being right and he caved and that and, and there's a pattern in these negotiations. In fact, it's part of the reason that the negotiations on uh, further coronavirus relief are stalled uh, that at some point the administration realized they kept getting rolled when they sent Stephen Mnuchin, the tre Treasury Secretary, in to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi. They, they always reached a compromise, uh, but it was always an advantageous compromise for the Democrats. So, uh, she, so I do think that in the situations where she's been able to wield her institutional power, she has mostly won those confrontations. Now, did she... Uh, did she succeed in removing the president when she impeached him, for example? No, she did not. Uh, has she managed to rein him in on things like foreign policy, where, frankly, the Congress traditionally does not have very much of a role? No, she has not. Uh, but when it, but when I think when we look back, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, at who left a greater stamp on Washington and on uh, American history in the period. Uh, that they were a part of it, I, I think that her impact is going to be much more lasting for that reason. Molly, um, one of the assessments or observations you made, um, which you've hinted at earlier in your conversation, but one of the assessments you made which I found striking and memorable was you saying, Nancy Pelosi doesn't insert her bean into conversations. She doesn't reveal really anything about herself. Now, in, in the United States, we're used to politicians with big personalities who insert their being into every conversation. Now, in your judgment or observation following her career, has that been part of her secret of her success? Or do you think that has been something which might have held her back from being even more effective? 
I think it is the latter. Now, look, uh, she, uh, going back to, to when I first set out to, to write about her, when I got that assignment, I frankly was not thrilled because I didn't think she was very interesting because the kinds of politicians that you love to write about if you're writing cover profiles for Time Magazine are the ones that have those big personalities, right? Uh, they're the, 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 the Lindsey Grahams and Stacey Abrams and the people who give the soaring speeches and, and, and who, you know, summon people's better angels to, to new ideals and hopes and dreams. And, and she is nobody's idea of that. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, when she doesn't, she doesn't talk about herself very openly, she doesn't really give you a sense of who she is beyond just her, 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 her relentless uh, uh, focus on results. So, you know, she was someone that I had to get to know and unpack a little bit uh, in order to find her interesting and hopefully to make her interesting to readers. Uh, and there's potentially a longer and more theoretical conversation here about uh, whether we privilege the wrong things in the way that we understand politics. Although, you know, I would argue that, you know, democracy is the, the worst thing we have except for all the others. But, uh, but so the point, being that, you know, I think it has served her well in the sense that part of the way that she is able to uh, control her, her caucus is number one, they don't think she has any higher aspirations. They don't think that she's, she's trying to build her resume so she can go run for Senate or governor or president someday, or so she can you know, have nice books and articles written about her in the media. Uh, she has a long enough track record uh, of being focused on their shared goals that she's believable in that sense. Uh, but she's also just not very good at it, right? And I think she on some level knows that she's not a, tremendous uh, public speaker or, or, or sharer of, of, of souls or, or with people. Uh, and so it's by focusing on, on what she, she is good at uh, that, that she's been able to sort of maximize her strengths. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, she, she's someone who, who doesn't like gossip uh, and uh, she's surrounded by it. She knows all kinds of things I would love to know about all the juicy tidbits of what goes on behind the scenes of the caucus, but she has a level of trust with her members because they know that she doesn't go around whispering things like this. She has a great trust among her members uh, because they know that, you know, when and if the legislation does uh, it's not going to be her up there at the lectern taking credit for everything. She's gonna push them up to the front and put their names in the press releases and make them look good for whatever it is that they've managed to achieve. Uh, so in that sense, I think, I, I think it has served her very well uh, to not sort of foreground herself in a lot of these discussions. Um, let's talk about uh, Pelosi's worldview or more specifically her view of America in the world. Um, you note that one former staffer described her position or her view as sceptical internationalism. And when Australians hear the word sceptical internationalism from uh, powerful Americans, you know, we become very fear fearful and wary. Um, could you explain what that means um, and whether this is a typical viewpoint amongst Democrats or indeed amongst Americans? Uh, well, I would love you to explain uh, why it makes you fearful and wary. But, um, but look, so, so there's one thing that a lot of people don't know about, uh, about Nancy Pelosi's background uh, is that a lot of the way that she sort of made her name in Congress when she was a very new and junior member uh, was with her activism on human rights in China. And there's a, a, a famous episode where she actually took a trip to China in 1991 and uh, she and a couple of other members of Congress threw off their Chinese handlers, snuck into Tiananmen Square and staged a protest for which they were then chased out uh, by Chi the Chinese police. So she has this, uh, she, the, her interpretation of Catholicism is very much about the inherent dignity and worth of all people. Uh, she disagrees with the church on a lot of the, 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 the sort of sexual morality issues with which it's become associated um, more recently. Uh, 
but I think her, her faith leads her to place a very high priority on international human rights. And so she's been a sort of China hawk. Uh, you know, she, she, she clashed quite strongly with then President Clinton uh, because he broke his promise to her to condition China trade on progress in human rights. Uh, he had promised her that he would do that. He, he, he in fact did that when he got into office and then he went back on it. And she has never trusted him frankly since then. Uh, and so when you look at things like trade agreements, she has, she has voted for some and not for others. Uh, she voted for NAFTA in part because of uh, assurances from the Clinton administration that it contained safeguards for the things that she cared about, things like human rights. Uh, and, and she later came to regret that vote and, and believed that, that in fact she was sort of sold a bill of goods by the Clinton White House. Uh, and if she had it to do again, she would not have voted for NAFTA. But then you look at, you know, on the same day that she announced that the House uh, the, the, the House was proceeding to, to impeach the president, she also announced that she had negotiated with the Trump administration uh, the, the USMCA, the NAFTA 2.0 agreement. And there was a lot of criticism from the left, from Democrats who said, why are you giving this president a policy win? Why are you allowing him to claim an accomplishment uh, on something, you know, a, a, a signature campaign promise now, it, it was not a, not a wholesale rewriting of NAFTA, although uh, many in the, of the president's allies tried to claim it was. it was. It was, if anything, a sort of cosmetic updating, but she felt that it took uh, an agreement that she felt was flawed and made it better. And therefore, she was willing to do it, whether or not it was in her political interest. So I think that that is a window into the way that she views these kinds of issues. She's not a wholesale free trader. She's not a wholesale protectionist. She is somewhere in between. Uh, and that has, and, and in a Democratic Party that is quite actually divided on those kinds of issues, I think that does put her sort of somewhere in the middle. Uh, but, uh, but, but she does have a sort of framework through which she views these types of policies. Uh, and she does look for any opportunity to, to, to actualize that. Uh, Molly, I'll hold off and let John speak to uh, why uh, Aussies might be uncomfortable with um, uh, skeptical internationalism. Uh, although I think uh, anything that has to do with America potentially not being as deeply engaged in the world uh, is troubling uh, from those uh, in Australia who want to see that role there. But I, I, I'm really glad that you talked about that incident in Tiananmen Square uh, when she visited China in 1991, because down here at least, despite bitter partisanship, China seems to be the one issue that has broad bipartisan support right now uh, in Congress. And it's not just Congress, you can see this in recent polling that's come out. 73% of Americans say that China uh, is an adversary of the US. I think it's more than two thirds now say that they would like the United States to take actions that punish China, both for their handling of the coronavirus, but also for their aggressive and predatory economic practices. It's funny though, because many of Congress and the Senate seem to be relatively recent converts to the idea that China poses a range of serious challenges. But as your book demonstrates, that's not true for Nancy Pelosi. Uh, these seem to be convictions that she's held for her entire congressional career. And because China is now such a big issue in American politics, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about both the genesis and the evolution of her thinking on China. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I've thought a lot about this, um, in part because, you know, uh, she and Donald Trump do share a quite uh, deep skepticism of the Chinese regime, but they have not managed to find common ground on that basis. And I think it's because, and I think that this is the problem with a lot of poll questions like the one that you cite, people come at this from different standpoints, right? Donald Trump is opposed to China because he feels that they've been ripping off the United States uh, when it comes to trade. Nancy Pelosi is against China because she feels that this is a, you know, a dictatorial and undemocratic regime that it oppresses its people. Uh, so there, there, while there might be room for agreement, uh, if, it, if they both, uh, you know, could get in a room and, and air uh, these differences in a, in a, in a sophisticated way, uh, that's not happening. Uh, and so at, at the same time, though, you know, there have been some quite strong stances taken 
uh, on human rights in China by Congress in the past couple of years, and she has been the engine of both of those. One of the things that I report in the book, which had not been previously reported, was her role in the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act uh, that Congress passed last year. Uh, this was something that was sort of, sort of languishing, frankly, and that she took up and championed, uh, and that was, was set to pass the House on a voice vote, which would have been, which would have been the preference of probably 80% of members of Congress on both sides, because this is a tough issue for them. It pits them against some important business interests uh, to take a stand on things like this. Uh, but she insisted that it be a recorded vote, that everybody have to go on the record, uh, taking a strong stand in favor of the protesters in Hong Kong. And it was a similar situation with the Uyghur Human Rights Bill uh, that she also had a hand in, in passing. And that, you know, uh, the, the Trump administration uh, really dithered and sent mixed signals about whether they were going, whether he was going to sign this, the, the Hong Kong bill in particular. And then he finally did in large part, I think because it had passed nearly unanimously, very difficult for him to, to rebuff that. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, and you, you mentioned that the genesis of it, you know, it really did come from her having, you know, she'd only been in Congress for a couple of years uh, when Tiananmen Square happened. It, she, she had been active on uh, international human rights issues before, had done, had done sort of Catholic mission trips to, to Central America and so forth. Uh, but, uh, but it was really seeing those images from Tiananmen Square and then hatch, and there was a congressional aide uh, who actually uh, knew someone who'd come back from China with, with some footage of what had happened there. Uh, and it seemed to just sort of, sort of tug on her heartstrings in a way that, that, that galvanized her and she never let it go. Uh, Molly, you talk at length in the book and, and, and today as well about her Pelosi's skill in reading the numbers and getting legislation through, um, which, which you say is impressive. I think one of the, one of the things that, um, have probably disappointed Australia, but, but much of the region most of all is the failure of the TPP to get through Congress. Um, and of course that, that, when, that, that was a case in the final period of the Obama years and, and Donald Trump pulled out of it. But on Pelosi, um, how critical should we be of Pelosi in failing to get enough progressive votes to pass the TPP? Or is that just something that was beyond uh, her powers? I, I, it's, it's a, I ask this question because it's a constant uh, complaint you still even hear from the Australian side in particular, that if only the Americans had put more political capital into passing a TPP. Yeah, I think there's certainly a lot of people to blame for the ultimate demise of TPP. Uh, but when, but in terms of what happened on the floor, I do spend quite a bit of time on on that, and that was something where you know it was near the end of the Obama administration. Her political capital was at a low ebb. ebb. She was in charge of uh, the, the the minority party in Congress, and when the Obama administration came to her and said, "We need to, we need you to to supply the votes from the Democrats to get." this past, we've got the Republicans on this piece, we need the Democrats on this piece, this is how we'll get it through. She said, I don't think you have the votes for this. Uh, I'll help you try, but I don't think I can get you the votes. And this is something that, that, that President Obama always valued about her was that she would always be straight with him. She would not promise something she did not think she could deliver. And at this point, uh, for whatever, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think she would probably argue that at that point it was already dead. That if they had done a better job of sort of crafting the agreement and selling it to the Congress in a way that Democrats found convincing, uh, they might have been able to get it through, but that that sort of political spade work was never done on the front end, which allowed it to be demagogued by, you know, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders alike, right, to the point where in, at the height of the 2016 campaign, you had insert, an insurgent candidate on the right and the left, both, can, both making their opposition to TPP a centerpiece of their political campaigns. That's not something you can fix just by, you know, twisting enough arms to get something uh, past the floor of the Congress. So, uh, you know, she was right. She couldn't get the votes. <laughs> and the Obama administration tried anyway, uh, but they failed. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I think once it became so politically 
unpopular, that even Hillary Clinton, the architect of this agreement in a lot of ways, had turned against it in her own political campaign. Uh, this, is, this was something that was sort of dead on arrival in the Congress. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of, of, of bigger reasons for that. Oh, I, I, I think right. Uh, final question uh, from John and me before we begin to go to the audience questions. Although uh, I want to know, Molly, that this is. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, there we go. Are we good? Yes. No. Maybe. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, I was saying last question here before we go to the audience, and this is actually a question. Uh, that a bunch of people have asked that in a Republican, uh, ex the most powerful Democrat, and therefore she could shape her party to a certain degree. Uh, as you write, uh, she seems to have a sense of obligation. Somebody has to do it. And also a sense of self-assurance. Only she could do it. Uh, if Joe Biden wins in November, what happens to Pelosi? Does she disappear somewhat into the background? Does she have to prove her worth to the party or does she begin to transition uh, and look for and maybe even groom who she wants to succeed her? Uh, so this question is the object of a lot of scheming and intrigue in the halls of Congress. It is something, if you ask you know, Nancy Pelosi about what lies ahead for her, she will get very touchy and irritated and accuse you of sexism, sexism and ageism and all kinds of things. Uh, she argues that because she didn't begin her congressional career until she was 47 and had already raised her children, that uh, you know she actually has 20 years less political experience than a lot of her male contemporaries, and therefore you should just knock 20 years off her age, which is actually not how chronological age functions in the real world. Uh, but you know, one of the things that I uh, reported in the book that had not been previously reported was that in 2018 after the midterm, she had to fight quite hard to, to regain the speakership because of the angst in the Democratic ranks and because she could not afford to lose a lot of votes on the floor in order to retain that position. And so she under she went through this, this series of negotiations, a sort of, you know, inside the inside the dome uh, political campaign uh, to try to get all of her members to, to support her, even though there was no one running against her. Uh, she still had to convince a lot of skeptical people to support her. And the, the final deal that she made that clinched uh, the, the votes that she needed for the speakership was that she agreed to a term limit. She agreed that she would stay on as speaker uh, no, for no more than two additional two-year terms, so, so until no, no later than, than 2022. And then she walked into her next meeting laughing and said, well, I was only planning on staying for one term and they just gave me two. So actually I, I won. Uh, another example of that, that, that fake concession tactic. But that was the only hint I was able to find, you know, in public or in private, where she gave any kind of signal that she was even thinking about retirement. Now, it's somewhat understandable, she doesn't want to lame duck herself, right? The minute she says, oh, I'm gone after the next election, all of the, the scheming and machinations move on to whoever wants to be speaker next and, and, and she's no longer relevant. But she also is someone who, you know, she's someone who believes that power is not something that is given to you, it is something you have to take. And when she first set out to run for leadership, when she'd been in the Congress for, for a decade already, uh, the sort of male-dominated democratic political establishment that ran the House at the time, or ran the, the Democratic Caucus, uh, the word got back to her that what they were saying was, well, who said she could run? And she found this absolutely infuriating, the idea that she ought to have to ask anybody permission. And, and, she's, and she just took it as motivation. She said, well, that just lights my fire. The other anecdote that actually didn't make it into the book, but uh, the, another thing that she heard that the, the, the men in charge were saying was, well, if, the, if there are things that the women want done, why don't they just give us a list and we'll do them? Why do they need to be the ones in the positions of, of power and influence? And that, again, she just found that enraging and motivating. Uh, but the point being, you know, nobody handed this to her. And when she's asked, you know, are you going to pass the baton? She says, well, everyone's got a baton in their purse. It's up to them to use it. She believes that whoever her successor will be has to prove him or herself by by, by waging that fight, by waging that campaign. Now she clearly, she has favorites, she has people she likes, uh, she has members that she sort of mentors formally or informally uh, because she thinks that they do have potential in the caucus. Um, 
but she's, but, and I have asked her, you know, you know, this is one of the criticisms. Why haven't you groomed a successor? And, and she just says, well, I was, I, it was Chris Van Hollen and he left. This is a congressman from Maryland who got tired of waiting around for years and years and years for her to decide she was done. She wouldn't make him any promises about when she might ride off into the sunset. And so he decided to run for Senate instead where he remains quite comfortably. So uh, I would not be surprised to see her hang it up if Joe Biden wins the election. That's, that's the short answer. I would not at all be surprised to see her retire. She is claimed, she told me, she's told others that she would have considered stepping down uh, had Hillary Clinton won the election in 2016, in part because that would guarantee that there was a woman at the table. Uh, and, uh, you know, without her in that room when the president meets with the top leaders of Congress, uh, that's an all-male group, and that really does mean something to her. Now, the vice president isn't usually in those rooms, so maybe she'll decide that, that she does still need to be there. She is, as you said, she is motivated by this, 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 this combination of obligation uh, and, and, and entitlement or self-assurance where she feels like someone's got to do it and nobody can do it better than she can. Uh, and it's hard to imagine her doing anything else. She's a very high-strung person. She barely sleeps or eats. It's hard for me to imagine her just sort of like, you know, retiring to her, her family vineyard in Napa Valley and enjoying herself uh, for, for the rest of her years. And I certainly can't imagine her becoming a lobbyist or anything like that. Uh, so, I, so, so I wouldn't be surprised to see her move on, but I wouldn't be all that surprised to see her stay either. Um, Charles and I are uh, now going to fire some questions at you, which have been um, submitted uh, live by some, some of the audience now. Uh, one is by Suzanne Rickard, and, and you raised the issue of uh, Nancy's successor. Now, we don't know who that will be, it seems like, but do we know who she is mentoring? Um, and a related question is, what do you think Nancy Pelosi thinks about the young left um, group within the Democrats, you know, AOC um, is, is the obvious one. Is she enthusiastic about them or is she worried that they're taking the Democrats in, in, in a uh, wrong direction? Yes, the answer to that is yes to both. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'll take, I'll take, uh, uh, I'll take that question first. You know, much has been made of the tensions, they are real tensions between uh, Democratic leadership, particularly Speaker Pelosi and the so-called squad. Uh, and, you know, I think on the one hand, she has handled them pretty skillfully. The day that, the day after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shocked the world by winning that upset primary uh, in, uh, in 2018, unseating a, a longtime lieutenant of Pelosi's, Nancy Pelosi was on the phone uh, just a few hours after she placed the condolence call to the man that AOC defeated, she was on the phone to Ale Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying, welcome to the Congress. I'm always so happy to have young progressive women in my caucus. Uh, so she was doing that uh, internal diplomacy from day one. Uh, and, you know, people forget that all four members of that so-called squad voted for Nancy Pelosi for speaker and would probably do it again, despite the, the sometime grumblings uh, that they have about the direction that leadership takes them. There is a suspicion on the left, I think a valid one, that because Pelosi herself identifies as a progressive and as a person of the left, because Republicans have spent hundreds of millions of dollars calling her a San Francisco liberal, she gets to sort of flash that credential and, and triangulate against them, right? She can use the, the sort of far left uh, flank of the caucus in order to pull the center of the caucus more toward where she wants it to be uh, while, while stiff arming the things that liberals actually want. Uh, so, so there is some ease there. You know, she has, she has at times been dismissive of AOC. Uh, I think partly she feels that she can't be seen to play favorites. So while she would like to harness the energy that exists on the left, she also very much is an institutionalist who believes that you have to, you know, sit down and learn the ropes before you go out there and start spouting off about uh, policies that you like on, on, on Twitter. And I think that also she just, I make the case in the book that she sort of understands hard power much better than she understands soft power. That the kind of influence, you know, there's this, there's this quote that, from her where I think she was actually uh, insulting my magazine. She said, you know, people make these lists of the hundred most influential people. Well, influence isn't power. And I think she's wrong about that. I think influence absolutely is a form of power, but the only form of power that matters to her because it's the only form of power that she's ever, uh, you know, successfully had 
uh, is counting votes, is hard power, is, you know, she had her first uh, position on, on, on any kind of political body as, as a San Francisco housewife in 1975. And she realized that, you know, nobody necessarily listened to her when she opened her mouth, but when she had a vote, people had to pay attention to, to what, she, what she thought and what she wanted. So that's all a long way of saying there's some tension there, um, but she's been able to keep them in line pretty well. And I've now forgotten the first part of your question. It, it's okay, we'll supply another one for you, Molly. Because uh, we've gotten a lot of uh, really good questions here. This one comes in from uh, Dana Loxton, who is at the University of Sydney. And it's one of several questions asking you for your opinion on if Trump loses, uh, but doesn't concede, uh, what is Nancy Pelosi's move? Mm. That's a fascinating question that I do not know the answer to. I mean, I think we see it prefigured somewhat in what's happening now, right? In the political uh, campaign that the Democrats have waged on everything from, you know, the Postal Service and mail-in voting uh, to election security and the work of the Intelligence Committee up to and including impeachment and the Russia investigation, uh, trying to get this kind of information about election interference out into the open in a climate where, uh, you know, many inside uh, the intelligence agencies feel that their their work is not uh, being 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 respected in the way that they're accustomed to uh, so uh, I don't know if there are concrete plans being drawn up I wouldn't be surprised if there are since this is now such a widespread concern uh, really across the political spectrum not not necessarily the the the, the Trumpist right but there are a lot of you know otherwise I think nonpartisan actors, who have been sort of wargaming this stuff and are, and are quite concerned uh, about the, the, the possibilities for, for real civil discord uh, if, if the president loses the, loses the election and, and, just, and just decides he won't leave the White House. So one more thing about this is that, you know, we, one thing that uh, gave a lot of, of hope to people who share these concerns was the Lafayette Square incident a couple of months ago, right, where the president marched out of the White House, uh, flanked by uh, the attorney general and one of the, the top military generals and, and, and tear gassed the peaceful protesters en route to the church where he held up the Bible. Uh, the fact that you then had numerous current and former top military officials come out in the following days denouncing that display and apologizing for their role in it, I think what that said to people was, there's not going to be a military coup if Trump decides he doesn't want to, to leave the White House. You're not going to have, uh, you know, the institutions of the United States military decide that they want to support a, a, a self-appointed king and keep him in office. Um, Molly, this question comes from Bruce Wolke, um, and he asks, if Trump wins the election in November, wins re-election, but the Democrats keep the House, and assuming there are more potentially high crimes and dis uh, demeanors uh, uh, that, that could be applied to President Trump. Uh, could you tell us about Pelosi's, um, how she played the first impeachment um, situation and whether you think there would be an appetite, assuming there was a reason to do so for a second impeachment action? How would Pelosi uh, view this issue? Obviously, we don't have this is a this is a, a speculatory question, but how did she play impeachment, and how do you think she would play it in the second term Trump uh, presidency? Yeah, I'm not good. There's a, there's a long string of hypotheticals before you get to uh, another impeachment that I'm not going to fully engage with. But in terms of how she handled the the first impeachment, you know, I followed that very closely and spoke to her a number of times while it was happening, and. Uh, you know, she had, from, from the time the Democrats took the House, really even before that, but certainly from the time the Democrats took the House in 2019, there was a, a drumbeat uh, calling for Trump's impeachment, and she resisted it for a long time. And this was due to her experience with the ghosts of impeachment's past, right? She had lived through uh, the Clinton impeachment, which she, her word for that, she thought it was a joke. She believed actually that uh, the, that the Republicans never regarded Clinton uh, as a legitimate president because they viewed him as, as, as low class. Uh, and, they, and she did not believe that impeachment was warranted. 
Uh, and so I think that that, and, and she also saw how it politically backfired on the Republican Party that pursued it. So as a political matter, uh, she thought it was not necessarily a good idea. And then when George W. Bush was president, she was constantly being called upon by the left to impeach him. It was actually one of the first questions uh, that she got asked when she became speaker in 2007 for the first time. There were, you know, code pink protesters camped out on her lawn for weeks, protesting in, in the halls of Congress, uh, demanding that she impeach uh, George Bush over the war in Iraq, and she refused to do so consistently uh, and, and earned a lot of contempt and, and even some primary challenges from the left for her trouble. But she believed that it would be divisive, uh, it, that it wasn't warranted on constitutional grounds, and that it would not achieve any material result. So, so then, you know, Trump comes along and uh, you have a lot of, uh, of people, particularly Democrats, saying, well, there are all these things he needs to be held accountable for, and we have to use the ultimate tool uh, of congressional accountability at our disposal, impeachment. Uh, and she resisted for a long time until uh, the Ukraine story came out and then reversed herself. Uh, and she would argue that it was not the case that she caved to, you know, the left wing of her caucus, but that what happened, she felt that, you know, her, her argument that it would be divisive and pointless, uh, was that was still the case. Uh, but she felt that it was merited, if not required, uh, based on the facts, based on the merits of the case. She felt that, that Congress was left with no choice, and it certainly helped that the, the moderate, the, the, the at-risk uh, politically members of her caucus had also come to that position. Uh, and she micromanaged the impeachment process quite mercilessly down to, you know, line editing the impeachment articles and the press releases that accompanied them and, and exerting, you know, very, and, and, and ensuring that the impeachment that they did bring was quite narrow and focused and, and some would say rushed. Uh, in the way that they went about it. Uh, but, but I think she looks back on that and believes that she was vindicated because in fact it was divisive and pointless. You did have a lot of people on the left saying, well, how do you know that, we're, that it isn't going to work? How do you know that we're not going to force Trump from office? We have to start the process uh, to see how it plays out. And this is exactly the argument that, that you know, we used to hear from, from the right when they were trying to uh, defund Obamacare was, well, we have to, we have to fight, we have to have the fight. And then we, and only then can we know if it's if it's a loser. Uh, but uh, but you know, I think she fought as hard as she possibly could to make that impeachment convincing and 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 politically impactful. Uh, but she believed from the beginning that it was never going to result in in Trump's removal from office. Now she she claims that it was not pointless in the sense that she will tell you now that well you know he has been impeached. There's an asterisk next to his name in the history books. No one can ever take that away from from them. Uh, but, but did it, you know, did it feed a healthy child? Did it pass a bill through the House and Senate? No, it did not. So that's very much the way she looks at the world. Final question uh, for you, Molly. Uh, we've appreciated your time because we know it's uh, evening time over there and you probably have to jump on to start watching the uh, Republican convention uh, and where they are on their speech making. But uh, this final question comes from Eileen uh, Pawani, who's at uh, St. Peter's University, which is a Jesuit University of New Jersey. And she asks you, um, what advice do you think Nancy Pelosi would offer to a young woman who was seeking to enter politics? Well, uh, I know what she tells young women who are interested in politics because we've talked about it and, and, and it's some version of, you know, so the, some, some combination of her favorite cliches, including the title of her memoir, Know Your Power. Uh, but in fact, you know, she has been trying and, and mostly failing to get more women to run for office uh, during the whole time that she's been in leadership, uh, in part because, you know, people look at the ways that she's been attacked over the course of her career, uh, the incredibly uh, the, just the incredible spate of abuse that has been leveled toward her, uh, which she'll tell you she doesn't mind. In politics, you know, you have to know how to take a punch and you have to know how to throw a punch. Uh, but it's very unpleasant if you don't have a very thick skin. And I think the, the, the lesson that I draw from Nancy Pelosi's career is that if you want to do this, you do have to have a very thick skin. You do have to be very, very tough. You do have to have a very strong center yourself so that you can't be demoralized or, uh, or depressed by the terrible things that people say about you uh, because they are going to. They're going to, to come after you very hard. But I think the, the, the sea change that I referred to earlier where, where so many women 
suddenly coming out of the woodwork to run for office in ways that they, they didn't at all before 2016 uh, is testament to that, that, that feeling that they now have that looking at Nancy Pelosi and seeing, all right, maybe I do have to get in this arena and fight. Maybe it isn't enough to find some other way to serve my country in, 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 you know, in academia or in the military or whatever else. Uh, and you do, you do now see a lot more women stepping up to that front line. Well, that's actually quite an optimistic uh, note to end on. Uh, and so, first of all, just from uh, John and myself and the U.S. Studies Center, thank you for coming to Australia, Molly. This is a great conversation, really illuminating one, uh, potentially an inspiring one, hopefully, for a lot of uh, young women who are listening uh, here. And uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, once again, everyone should now go online, buy the book. It's terrific. It's got a terrific write-up uh, as well. Uh, those of you who watch these know that John and I like to have a... Uh, conversation a month with a uh, new book that's out. So stay tuned for the next one. Uh, but you don't have to wait uh, that long because on September 1st, uh, John Bolton will be on our next uh, webinar uh, with our CEO, Simon Jackman, interviewing him. So please uh, register. Registration is free for that, but you do have to register in advance. Uh, if you wanna watch this again, if you wanna send this webinar to uh, your friends, check out the United States Study Center website where we keep a repository of all this stuff. And most importantly, uh, although none of you can see this, our terrific team at the US Study Center, uh, Mara and Janine, Suze who does our graphics, uh, and Taylor and Mari who really get the word out. Uh, none of this stuff happens without them. So I know you all are offering a virtual applause or as Molly did, a real applause right there. So thanks so much, Molly, uh, for your time. Uh, we're all going to eagerly follow your coverage of the convention. And good luck uh, with the virtual book tour as you proceed. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening.